0: Turning now to one of the deadliest conflicts in the world. Yemen's civil war has been going on for nearly three years. Iran supports one side, while Saudi Arabia supports the other.
1: More than 10,000 people have died. Two million others have been displaced amid a horrific cholera epidemic. CBS News foreign correspondent Holly Williams recently got rare access to Yemen thanks to the Saudi government. She was able to see their version of the
0: war. These fighters are taking us to the front line, which is at the top of this mountain range. For nearly three years, Saudi
1: Arabia has been backing these Yemeni government soldiers,
0: fighting a brutal war against Houthi rebels who have seized swaths of land. Yemeni General Nasser al-Debani told us Saudi airstrikes are helping him win back these barren hills. Oh. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. I'm Joe, and with me today is Travis from Kurdistan again. Hello. And it's, it's nice that um, you didn't get disappeared by the acai after our episodes together, so uh, progress. Oh, yeah.
1: No, it's true. Um, this morning I had to go into the acai office close by in order to like, file some paperwork for an apartment move. And, uh, in the back of my head, I was thinking like, you know, uh, what if, what if, what if they listen to the episode? You're going to get khashoggi <laughs>
0: Yeah.
1: I'm not going to walk out of this office. There's somebody uh, will in your clothes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go out the back in like a, a series of trash bags, <laughs> uh, but luckily, luckily I don't think there are any big fans of the lions led by donkeys podcast in the, uh, Kurdistan Regional Government Asayish uh, Department, um, at least for the, the PDK party. So you know, we're, it, we're, in the, we're in the clear for now.
0: It's kind of weird. So the Asayish is kind of like the secret police, right? Or like the intelligence service? Uh, it's kind of... Um, so the way it
1: works, not to get into too much detail, is you've got, the, uh, so you've got the Peshmerga, which is like the military, and then you've got the Asayish, which is kind of a combination of secret police intelligence like internal intelligence and just like normal general security they're more like i'd say the fbi oh, um okay. with an extra level of like just normal police um on top of that because like i'm i went to file just like look like i'm living at this apartment in this neighborhood so like um then they're just like normal dudes it's not like secret police kind of stuff it's pretty standard day-to-day now, is that security because you're operation. a foreigner,
0: or do they make everybody um, register with them?
1: I think everybody has to do it, but most of the time it's not as formal. But since I'm a foreigner, um, sponsored by a company, like it's a little more intense um, to get that done. Uh, but yeah, so then the, the Asayish is kind of I would say like the standard, the kind of security force that everybody will deal with in their kind—not con- necessarily day-to-day life, but like on a relatively normal basis. There's also the normal police, but they're just like traffic cops um, and like crowd control kind of stuff. And then there's Parastin, which is more of the like legit secret police with like the, you know, the massage dungeons. Um, and uh, <laughs>
0: massage dungeons.
1: Yeah, yeah. They're the ones who disappear people to really great vacations. Um, yeah, of course. Well done. Yeah. Uh, and then there's also the. I think they call it the the directorate or the department or something. Oh, that's like not, tech-
0: that doesn't sound yeah.
1: awful. <laughs> yeah, and in Kurdish, I think they call it the like agence. Um but that's more like the it's kind of more like the NSA, like signals intelligence. Um, so it's not actually as scary as uh, as it sounds. I think Paristan is the one people are like legit scared about, and like don't you don't want to talk about Paristan um with just like normal people in the street because they probably work for paris Den, and they're gonna,
0: <laughs> so it's like the the kurdish stasi everybody yeah, works for them in one way or another
1: yeah i mean like if you um like are uh, working for a big company or something uh like they probably know like everything about you because somebody is informing on you be it someone at your apartment someone at your office like the the security guard at the office like they know, like, and they're watching all the time. So, like, there's really not, um, like, the, the security services here are very, you could say, effective in, in certain ways. They're oh, very that's effective terrifying. <laughs> yeah. well, they learn from the best because basically all the money the U.S. gave to the KRG either went into corruption or into funding a massive, like, state security apparatus. Um, that's unbranded. Yeah, pretty much. And of course, that's, you know, tens of billions of dollars. Yeah. (laughs) It's basically the entire economy of KERG is uh, the U.S. giving them money to spend on, like, new ways to spy on people so that they can offer them really great vacation packages.
0: (laughs) Well, speaking of people that the U.S. (laughs) spend money on, you like that pivot? Uh, That was a great segment. (laughs) Uh, Today, we're going to be doing something a little different, uh, which is kind of, I guess... Travis and I's thing, whenever you come on, we we tend to break the mold a bit. Uh we're not gonna be talking about something in history. We're going to be talking about something that's still going on, which and it's in the Middle East, which is why Travis is perfect for this. He's the closest thing to a Middle <laughs> East expert. They'll give me the time of day. Uh and and that is the Yemeni Civil War. Uh it's also been called the Arab Coalition War, or you know, Iranian Saudi proxy war, whatever the fuck you want to call it. we talking mm-hmm. about it today. Uh but before we get into um Our main topic at hand I guess we should kind of try to explain uh, give like a Yemeni Civil War 101 on the uh, Houthi Mm -hmm. uprising and that is where Travis comes in yeah so um,
1: I guess uh, in order to really kind of see where we are today you kind of have to talk about the history a little bit and uh, just as like a little bit of a disclaimer I'm not a Yemen expert my specific knowledge is um and stuff like turkey iraq iran and a little bit syria and obviously i live in iraq so like my iraq knowledge is more than any of the the others but i think it's important um when discussing stuff um like the yemeni civil war or other things in the middle east that um if you have the ability to like apply learned knowledge to reading the wikipedia article like that's important because if you just read the wikipedia article Um, Without any of the other context, you might miss certain things or not be able to put things in their proper context. And although I haven't really spent a lot of time studying Yemen, um, I do know, like, not to sound arrogant or anything, but I do know a lot about the Middle East and its history and its present. Um, So I'm able to put like the Wikipedia article into its proper context. However, if there are Yemen experts in the audience um feel free to send me angry DMs uh, on Twitter <laughs> at jcast99 um, because I'll respond to all of your your angry angry DMs um, just remember it's jcast99
0: you know it's surprising that the only hate mail this podcast has received so far was by someone standing for prageru <laughs> oh, i saw that, that did i didn't even listen to this like what a- <laughs> i don't understand that audience <laughs> Oh man! If only I had one tenth the smart smarts of Prager, this podcast (laughs) would be a success. What if they're like a huge Far Cry Four fan who's also a chud? Oh man, (laughs) he's definitely on the side of pagan men. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But anyway, uh, back to Yemen. Um, So
1: I kind of like to give the broad, like, start the history as early as I can without getting too deep into like, weird ancient history, but, um, basic, the ancient history is nobody cares up until, um, it becomes Muslim in, like, the 7th or 8th century, I think, and then, again, nobody cares until the Ottomans conquer it until in the mid-16th century, um, so the Ottomans, um, they conquered the Arabian Peninsula and Egypt at, like, around the same time they captured it from, I think, the Mamluk dynasty in Egypt, um and seized the the holy cities of mecca and medina in the uh in what is now saudi arabia and then also in order to ensure that the southern border of those cities was secure they moved into what is now yemen and oman and captured those Um, and they held them pretty firmly for about 200 years but uh in the early like late 18th and early 19th century the ottoman empire started to lose a lot of power in the more like fringe parts of its um of its empire, like in North Africa and Yemen. Um they were fighting a series of like really bad wars against the Russian Empire, uh the Safavid uh Safavids? I uh, was no not the Safavids. Whatever. Whatever the Iranian Empire at the time was, I think it's the Safavids, but I could be wrong. Um and then in like the eighteen thirties or something like that, um the the, the the country that loves to fill in power gaps came in and filled in this power gap and that's the uh, e- British Empire at the behest of the East India Company, um, <laughs> because they their ships needed a, a spot to like refuel or not refuel because it's like the 1830s but resupply I suppose, um and they you know b- brought the gunboats in shot up the Gulf of uh, the port of Aden and established um a little bit of like not a colony but like a british protectorate in a sense um the ottomans briefly came back into the rest of yemen um until the collapse of the ottoman empire in world war one and uh, so in 1918 the what is now yemen and saudi arabia became fully independent um from the the yoke of the hated sultan in istanbul um and uh There was a Yemeni, um, like, I don't remember if he was like a tribal chief or an imam or a king, what his title was. But he came into power in what is now um, North Yemen, the northern part of Yemen, and uh, formed like a a semi-independent Yemeni polity. Um, And then the British also, the the British kind of like had him as a vassal king and also set up... um, A protectorate in the southern part of Yemen so as of like the 1920s Yemen was divided into two sections there's North Yemen which um, if you're familiar with the geography of Yemen it's basically a big rectangle at the bottom of Saudi Arabia um, bordering the Red Sea and the Gulf of Oman and uh, so North Yemen isn't like strictly a line through the middle that the top 50% is the North North Yemen is specifically the kind of the northwestern triangle that borders the, the Red Sea on the left or the western side and Saudi Arabia on the northern side. So that's North Yemen. And then South Yemen is kind of everything else. So bordering the, the Gulf of Oman, the actual country of Oman and also a little bit of the Saudi border. And so the, the South Yemen was dubbed the protectorate of Aden, which was under more direct British control. And then Yemen was placed under a uh, like the vassal king, um, and so this uh, this status quo lasted for a couple of decades until after the the end of the Second World War led to um, kind of the the wars of decolonization that in a sense we're still fighting to this day. Like you could argue probably that every major conflict in the world right now, like Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, Yemen, Libya, and so on are all just extended versions of the wars of decolonization that began after the Second World War. And uh, so, for example, immediately after World War II, you had uprisings, nationalist uprisings in Algeria and Palestine, um, Iraq, Yemen, and um, in most of these countries, um, the ideology that was the the core of the uprising was um uh variation various forms of arab nationalism there is parent arabism arab socialism and so on and the most successful one um at least in the context of yemen was the the coup led by gamal abdel Nasser in egypt and i think 1956 or 1958 one of the two no 19 i think 56 either it doesn't really matter 1950s. Um, but he was uh, an Arab, very much an Arab nationalist, pan-Arabist. Um, kind of a side note, he briefed like Egypt and what is now Syria were briefly one country in the 1960s.
0: Yeah, they uh, even came up with like a flag and stuff, right?
1: Yeah. United Arab Republic. Um, it didn't last very long. And um, ultimately, it was a failed concept. But this idea of pan-Arabism was really big in like the late 50s and the early 1960s, mostly because of the success of Gamal Abdel Nasser in Egypt. Um, He overthrew a British puppet king and um, instituted a kind of Arab socialist, um, pan-Arabist regime in Egypt that was very powerful, very influential in the Middle East and the Arab world as a whole. And this, um, his revolution inspired a bunch of others. So in Yemen, um, the uh, in 1962 the the kind of British puppet king, his name was Imam Ahmad bin Yahya. Uh, he died, and he was also the son of the king who had liberated it from the the Ottomans back in like 1918. Um, and then there was this kind of power vacuum and a lot of disagreement over who would succeed him. And um, as a result, the, the uh, a group of officers in the army led um, an uprising against the chosen successor to the king. And uh, a civil war broke out between royalist supporters um, who were supported or backed by Saudi Arabia, Israel, and the UK. And then they were fighting the rebels, the which was kind of, I think, most of the, the army, the former army who were supported by Egypt. And this civil war was pretty brutal. Um, it lasted until, I think, 1968. And, um, Egypt sent considerable numbers of troops to the Yemeni, I think Yemeni civil war. And I think they ended up losing close to 20,000 soldiers. Egypt did. Wow. Um, So it was just a really brutal war. I mean, this territory in North Yemen is really difficult.
0: It's pretty mountainous, uh, isn't it?
1: Yeah. It's very rugged territory. And also, um, like just the, the fighting itself was really brutal. Like there's Saudis, uh, Saudi troops, Yemeni troops, uh, Egyptian troops, um, all killing each other it was called like Egypt's Vietnam um after Vietnam happened because in 1962 Vietnam wasn't really a thing that you know we didn't know we had lost it yet um <laughs> but uh uh because you know tons of Egypt, uh, Egyptian troops died and um it lasted years and it kind of eroded a lot of Nasser's popularity and uh, influence in Egypt and was a big part of why he eventually um did he leave office or was he assassinated that's a pretty major gap in my
0: abdel nasser wasn't he assassinated uh at a parade That sounds right um like like a whole bunch of officers chucked hand grenades at him i thought yeah it was either him or the guy who came after
1: him i don't remember maybe he died of natural causes maybe he was assassinated either way he was no longer the leader of egypt (laughs) soon after the end of the yemeni civil war and also the uh The uh, 1967 Arab-Israeli war. But um, so either way, the war in Yemen, despite the fact that Egypt, it was called Egypt's Vietnam, the rebels backed by Egypt did eventually win um, and overthrew the British backed king. um, And they would then establish the uh, what they called the the Yemeni Arab Republic, I think, um, or the Arab Republic of Yemen, something like that. Um, and, uh, but then towards at the same time and the protectorate of Aden, so South Yemen, um, the struggle in the North inspired a similar, um, uprising against the British government, government, um, in South Yemen. Um, and by I think 1967, um, the rebels in South Yemen were victorious as well and overthrew the British control and they formed um, the People's Republic of South Yemen.
0: I have um, to uh, say that um, Nasser died of a heart attack. It was Anwar uh, Sadat that got the hand grenades thrown at him. Yeah, just, just so okay. we don't piss off our uh, Egyptian nationalist <laughs> listeners. Okay. Um,
1: Alright, that's good to know. I'll I'll try and remember that for next time. Um, but yeah, so now we've got the, the Arab Republic of Yemen in the north or the Yemen Arab Republic, one of the two. And then the People's Republic of South Yemen and the South. And by this point, you might kind of be wondering, um, People's Republic of South Yemen. That sounds like pretty commie. Right. Um, and, and you'd be right. Um, pretty much hundred percent. So South Yemen, um, was very much a Marxist Leninist state, single party Marxist Leninist state that after the, after its victory enacted a radical program of nationalization and, um, kind of top-down communist reform of the uh, economy. And they're also heavily supported by the USSR and other warsaw Pact states. So they're very much a kind of Cold War communist country. The North, on the other hand, was much more modeled after um, Nasser's Egypt. So it was kind of, quote-unquote, Arab socialism, which basically meant a strong central military government and a hefty welfare state But not really like not really socialist, kind of like it's like more like social democracy, but without the democracy part. (laughs) Um, Social fascism. Yeah, in a sense. (laughs) But uh, North Yemen, despite having a more, I guess you could call moderate political uh, ideology, never really found the same favor with uh, foreign powers as the more radical People's Republic of South Yemen did. Um, And so by like 1970, you had these two countries, North and South Yemen, and they had a fairly tense relationship with each other, with some skirmishes breaking out in 1972 and again in 1979. Um, And then also in 1978, a name that we'll be talking about a lot later, um, Ali Abdullah Saleh, uh, was named the president of North Yemen. Um, So remember the name, we'll be talking about it later on. Um, but yeah, so the both sides, North and South Yemen, pledged to unify into one state at some point. Um, however, this didn't really happen until the USSR collapsed and the kind of global Cold War order of kind of the pro-NATO, pro-American West versus the pro-USSR, quote unquote, East. Uh, that When that ended, all of the kind of USSR-supported communist states across the world kind of collapsed or figured out a way to operate without the ussr Um, south yemen was one of the states that just collapsed Um, and the two countries unified north and south yemen unified um, in 1990 into the republic of yemen which is the name that has lasted uh, through to this day Um, however just because they had officially unified doesn't mean that divides between the North and the South ended. Um, The first Yemeni president was um, uh, from the South, South Yemen. And um, obviously the North wasn't really too happy with the status quo. Um, And so there was a a civil war in 1994 um, in which Saudi Arabia backed the South. And uh, however, the North won. And uh, that guy I mentioned, Ali Abdullah Saleh, um, he eventually became the president of all of Yemen in 1999. Um, so this Ali Saleh would stay the president of Yemen for quite some time. Um, so between in the late 90s, the the ideology of much much of the Middle East, um, really not so much the late 90s, but throughout the late 80s and the 90s, the ideology or the the popular ideologies. In the Middle East shifted. So in the '70s, especially '60s and '70s, you had the it was kind of like nationalists and communists versus like more like royalists of some kind, like pro more pro Western but like you know old school patriarchal monarchies. Um, and the Islamists they they were there, but they weren't the primary voice. They were suppressed by both sides. Um, and a combination of The popularity of the 1979 iranian islamic revolution and then probably in countries like saudi arabia yemen egypt and others more importantly the enormous amounts of cia funding towards islamist movements um led to these movements gaining significant traction and popularity in opposition to the kind of corrupt like arab nationalist or arab socialist governments that they had Uh, so like um i don't know if i've mentioned it before but you know in afghanistan the during the soviet occupation you might talk about it in your war in afghanistan episodes the pamphlets that were handed out by the cia or the textbooks that were handed out by the cia um to like afghan school children in refugee camps in pakistan would be like um, one plus one equals two. If you kill, if there are six infidels and you kill three of them, how many infidels are left? Yeah. in Texas, um, by the CIA. Um, That's magnificent. Yeah, and uh, I mean the the U.S. like a very like overt, deliberate attempt to inspire and fund and make more popular, um, like pretty extremist Islamic. Ideologies, particularly Salafism um, of the brand practiced in Saudi Arabia um, based on the teachings of what is his name? Ibn al-Wahhab or something. I thought the they early... followed
0: Wahhabism.
1: Well, okay. So there's, there's this guy in the early 1800s. I think his name was like Ibn al-Wahhab or something like that, who was, who led a rebellion against the Ottoman occupation and the Ottomans in conjunction with the um, Egyptians, uh, brutally suppressed the rebellion. However, I've argued not hard enough um, because Ibn al-Wahhab formed what is, or like inspired what we call, what is called Wahhabism, which is also called Salafism. It's like two words for the same thing. I think Salafis Salafi is like a more derogatory, like a lot of Salafis don't like to be called Salafi, I think, but they mean the same thing. Um, It's like, it's a modern phenomenon. Like, I've seen a lot of people saying that, um, oh, like Wahhabism or Salafism or whatever. That's like old school Islam. That's not true. It's a modern phenomenon that's about 150 years old. And in terms of its popularity in the Middle East is about 30 years old um, because of American funding of basically Saudi Arabia and um, Throughout the Cold War and into the present,
0: yeah, so, and there's an there's an interesting part that, and obviously I'll go into this much further when we're on that topic. But uh, Zia al Haq, who was the president of Pakistan at the time, actually pivoted towards supporting them. Because he admired Ronald Reagan so much that he wanted to uh, mirror his conservatism in Pakistan, which turned into Islamic con- conservatism. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so thanks. Uh, you know that gif of DJ Khaled being like, congratulations,
1: yeah, yeah. you played yourself. <laughs> um, I just want to like hold that up in front of like all of America. Um, because congratulations, America. You played yourself. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So back to Yemen. Um, as a result of this, all the stuff that I just talked about, the ruling, the like the dominant ideologies in Yemen in the 90s and through to the present is not, you know, communism versus royalism. It's various brands of Islamism and kind of um, combined with just kind of general, you know, authoritarian conservatism. Uh, against each other so I guess we briefly talk about the demographics of Yemen Yemen is split between Shia and Sunni um, although to be honest this factor is way t- it's talked about way too much in my opinion in kind of like normal Western discourse on Yemen because like what I'll talk to later is like the, the about the Houthi movement they're Shia and Sunni like they're majority Shia but like branding them as like a uniquely Shia movement is uh fallacious and branding the opposition as uniquely sunni is also not entirely true um, but anyway so 2004 um, this guy hussein badreddin al houthi was um a, a major uh shia Zaidi shia figure in north yemen uh who's critic, who criticized the the government of ali abdullah saleh um because he said they were corrupt which is almost certainly true. And he criticized the fact that they had a close relationship with Saudi Arabia and the United States. Um, and uh, in response, um, the uh, Saleh government um, attempted to arrest uh, Al-Houthi and um, his supporters, which included a lot of the army, um, rose up and uh, started an insurgency against the government. And, um, the uh, al-houthi himself was killed soon late soon after but his brother soon like quickly took control and the movement continued um and the war continued and escalated um and the houthi movement um eventually you'll oh, also by the way the houthis call themselves the official title of their movement is ansar allah which is i think it's like supporters of god it's pretty like a not particularly unique title um but like officially like if you want to refer to them it's better to say Ansar Allah than Houthis because Houthis is not really like correct because it also includes large sections of the army um who are not who are Sunni um it's not just like a Shia Houthi movement it's a lot of different like factions but the Houthis are I again mean, the biggest one so we'll stick with the Houthis because it's also easier to pronounce um So the war escalated, um, and by the end of, by around 2008, 2009, the Houthis had control over most of, like, the rural mountainous parts of northern Yemen. In 2009, the Saudis joined in, um, as well as Jordanian and Moroccan troops, and they invaded north Yemen to attempt to suppress the Houthis. It didn't work. The Saudis took heavy casualties. Um, It was a brief operation, but they lost over 100 dead, like, officially, so it's probably two or three times that. Um, they lost several jets, like fighter jets, who, that either crashed or were shot down. I, I didn't research that enough. But either way, they lost three jets. So that's like half a billion dollars down the drain. Um, and the fighting was intense enough that both sides agreed to a ceasefire uh, in early 2010. Um, however, the ceasefire wasn't particularly effective as skirmishes continued throughout 2010. Um, in 2011, massive protests broke out in the capital of Yemen, uh, which at the time was Sana'a and uh, North Yemen. Um, so the protests were kind of similar to a lot of the Arab Spring protests in like Egypt, Tunisia, Syria, Bahrain at the time. Um, They're basically anti-corruption, uh, pro-democracy. Um, and these were against the Ali Abdullah Saleh government, who remained the president and had been basically a big player in Yemen since at least 1978. Um, The Houthi movement declared its support for the anti-Saleh protests and um, Houthi fighters captured um, a major city in North Yemen, declared a new government, um, basically said the the Saleh government is illegitimate. We have this new government now. This is the official government of Yemen. Um, And so the skirmishes and violence and so on escalated. Uh, so in November of 2011 uh, Saleh negotiated a deal with uh, the GCC the Gulf Cooperation Council, which is basically um, An organization of all the Gulf Arab states. So like Saudi, Qatar uh, the Emirates Bahrain and Oman, I think uh, Maybe Kuwait. Uh, and then so the deal was there would be an election and afterwards Saleh would hand over power to whoever won the election um The Houthis rejected the deal saying that the election would be a sham and that uh, it was basically just a ploy for Saleh to save his skin and for the Saudis to keep an ally in Yemen. So an election was held in February of 2012 um, and after the election uh, this guy Mansour al-Hadi won a very legitimate 99.8% of the vote um, and he was sworn in uh, like the next day. Um, So clearly... This guy has a huge mandate, right? He won 99.8% of the vote, um, which is definitely real. He, I guess they stopped short of him winning like 105%. But, well, that's nice. I mean, come on. Like, just say he won like 56% and call it a day. Like, that's how a smart person rigs an election.
0: Yeah, with a 100% um, turnout.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but of course, you know, this guy, Mansour al-Hadi, who's close with the Saudis, Winning 99.8% of the vote didn't really go over great with the Houthis and violence escalated and uh, The Houthis continued to solidify their control over the countryside in North Yemen um, However in Sanaa in the capital Protests against the the Hadi government continued and escalated for the, over the next couple like two years so in August of 2014 protests against the Hadi government reached a fever pitch and in late September, Houthi military forces entered the capital and took control, um, forcing the prime minister and president to resign um, and installing a new parliament and government. Uh, Hadi was placed under house arrest, but somehow managed to escape and um, fled to Aden, which is the other major city in Yemen on the southern uh, Gulf of Oman coast. And he declared Aden the uh, provisional capital of Yemen with the support of Saudi, the GCC, most of Europe, the United States, and so on. Um, so in this power vacuum, Al-Qaeda was growing in power um, and influence and also territory and the sparsely populated uh, rural areas of eastern Yemen um, and focused the majority of their violence against the Houthis um, because Al-Qaeda they are a Salafi movement, and so as a result, they view anything that's even remotely like smells Shia as bad, as basically the worst possible thing. And they kill like their primary attack of, um, or primary target of groups like Al Qaeda and ISIS is usually killing Shia um, or attempting to kill Shia, be it in Afghanistan or Yemen or Iraq. um So there's one like particularly brutal suicide bombing on. Uh, several Shia mosques in sanaa in um, I think March no or February of 2015, which killed over 150 people um, like in one day and wounded like three or four hundred more is. really brutal. Um, and so basically all this led to in 2015, March of 2015, it basically escalated to a full-scale civil war between the Houthis and the Hadi provisional government um and also at the same time uh it starts to get even more confusing because around this time the military or most much of the military which was loyal to former president Ali Abdullah Saleh defected to join the Houthis as did Saleh himself so the guy who killed you know the, the al houthi then joins the Houthis um in order to fight against the Hadi government. So it doesn't, I don't really know why, but he wanted to be back resulted, in power or something. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, it's random power plays, stuff like that. But what this meant is that the Houthi movement, and this is something that is really overlooked in um, the kind of English language press is that the Houthi movement isn't just like, you know, a couple of guys with sandals and AK 47s up in the mountains. It's like oh, a significant portion of the former Yemeni army, which was very well equipped by like the United States um, and other countries um, as like as a result of the the global war on terror. So like the, the Houthis occasionally launch like ballistic missiles at Saudi Arabia, mostly not very successfully, but like they do it more as like a propaganda thing than uh, like an actual like attempt to kill people. I think they can Um, hit Riyadh now. Yeah, they can. They hit the Riyadh airport. Um, and they've been, there've been a couple of pretty successful ballistic missile attacks, mostly within Yemen, but also on Saudi Arabia, but the Western press, or at least the Western government, which and the Western press then immediately like repeats, whatever, like the DOD says, um, is that these ballistic missiles are sourced from Iran, but that's like, that's just not true. I mean, they're the ballistic missiles were just what the Yemeni army had before, the uh the civil war broke out they're basically scud missiles like scud b missiles or yeah um iranian made missiles that were purchased before the war like i don't know i'm gonna talk about that in a second but um so either way the the houthi Re- Re- rebellion revolution whatever you want to call it um by 2015 is like very well equipped um and very well staffed with manpower um, so at the same time, March 2015, uh, Al-Hadi, the provisional president of Yemen and the guy re- recognized as the president of Yemen by most of the world, at least the United States, Europe, Saudi Arabia, and so on. He fled to Saudi Arabia and he's been in Saudi Arabia ever since. So the president of Yemen does not live in Yemen. Um, and at the same time, uh, any good president, Sa- you know, of course, <laughs> get a little broad. The best presidents live in other countries entirely. Um, So at this time, 2015, the the Saudi coalition was formed uh, in order to provide military support to the pro-Hadi southern Yemeni forces against the Houthis. And so the coalition includes um, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Sudan, Senegal, Morocco, and al-Qaeda, with logistical support from the United States, United Kingdom, France, and also al-Qaeda. I just want to emphasize that the United States has been working with Al-Qaeda and in Yemen in order to fight against the Houthis um, that's not an exaggeration it's true
0: and there was um, a story <laughs> when like the war began or like the civil war f- fully kicked off where um, the president um a certain amount of suspected Al-Qaeda terrorists like onto mm-hmm. the streets to be like look it's the global war on terror so they get more yeah, money yeah exactly <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, it's really really sketchy and fucked up because, I mean, like, wasn't this whole thing started back in 2001 to fight Al-Qaeda? And now we're, like, working with them in Yemen and in Syria? Like, hello, come on, people, wake up.
0: The real global war on terror is the friends we made along the way. (laughs) With friends like these.
1: (laughs) But anyway, so... So after 2015, the civil war escalated considerably through till the present and um, the Saudi coalition um, since 2015 has carried out a pretty horrific campaign of terror bombing across Houthi territory in northern Yemen, deliberately targeting um, civilian infrastructure like electrical plants, water treatment plants, pipelines, roads, and so on, as well as just generally civilians like a true terror bombing campaign. Um, they're pretty famous for conducting conducting Double and triple tap airstrikes Which uh, for those who aren't familiar With horrific war crimes invented By the United States and Israel um, <laughs> is, uh, is where you drop One round of bombs on A legitimate target for example A wedding or a crowded marketplace Or a school or a hospital Those are only and legitimate
0: then, if you're an asshole <laughs> yeah. Well you know
1: You were in the military so That's fair That's fair. <laughs> No shade meant, um, <laughs> uh, but uh, so yeah. So they drop the the bombs on you know the the wedding or whatever, and then when the ambulances and doctors show up to like treat the wounded, they bomb those as well. Um, and then when all of those people have been taken to you know be buried, what, whatever's left of them has been taken to a funeral. They then bomb the funeral. Um, so if that's that's a triple tap airstrike, those are more rare. Double taps are pretty standard, but triple taps are pretty true i think even saudi recognizes that maybe they should like not do those very often um but i know there's been at least one now more, more than one instance where one of these airstrikes has killed over 300 people um just like in one go because uh, they'll bomb like a, a marketplace or a wedding or
0: something like that where well, they just blew up that matter. school too full of kids not that long ago yeah it's,
1: a school bus
0: yeah, yeah it's killed like 50 kids something like that um
1: but like that's the more publicly obvious horrific war crime that the Saudis are doing in coordination with the United States. But like probably even worse, um, is the, the Naval blockade, um, which this has been even more direct by the United States. Cause like the U S Navy is actively participating in preventing aid into entering Yemen. Um, there's like Navy ships in the uh, Red Sea and Gulf of Oman, like, uh, Constantly Gulf of Aden, I think is that. I've been saying Gulf of Oman when I meant Gulf of Aden. Um, but uh, so yeah, there's a naval blockade of Houthi territory, which prevents food and other aid. Um, and entering Houthi territory, which has resulted in the deliberate starvation of as many as 10 million people and massive outbreaks of disease, including what is currently the largest cholera outbreak in human history, is uh, ongoing as we speak in Yemen. Um In terms of casualty estimates from all of this stuff, there hasn't been a formal study conducted since, I want to say, 2015, which is why usually when you read a news article in New York Times or something like that, they'll say um, approximately 15,000 civilians have been killed as a result of the the war in Yemen. Um, And and that's definitely low bald. Yeah, that might have been true in 2015, but now um, it's at least several hundred thousand people. Um, Save the Children, which is a, a pretty reputable um, aid organization um, that I've worked with here in Iraq, um, and has lots of uh, like missions around really like conflict-stricken places, including Yemen. They estimated in late 2018, I think the article was in like December, November, December. They estimated that 85,000 children alone have starved to death. As a result of the the blockade and the Saudi bombing of civilian infrastructure, um, so if it's eighty five thousand children have starved to death, like how many adults, how many like senior citizens um, have also starved to death?
0: I mean, I'd it, uh, it argue it's at least equal, but probably greater than. Exactly. Yeah. So probably
1: that's like one hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand people have starved to death as a result of this blockade, and not to mention the cholera outbreak, which. Official estimates are like three or four thousand people have died as a result of cholera, but it's probably more. And also cholera isn't the only thing. I mean, I'm sure there's like more standard stuff like tuberculosis, typhus, uh,
0: dysentery,
1: typhus that are also like killing people. Um, it's, you know, very it's like more indirect, but because nobody can access medicine, people are malnourished. They don't have access to clean water um, de- deliberately as a result of the Saudi and American um, and other coalition partners campaign of basically not quite genocide but like "Mm, that's a thin line um and also i want to emphasize that the united states is highly involved in this war um at least publicly we know that the united states provides aerial refueling to saudi aircraft oh yeah aircraft are um, they're maintained often by American military or American contractors and logistics and, and yeah, targeting exactly. and bombs yeah. <laughs> Intelli- intelligence is provided by the United States United Kingdom um, like uh, also we sell them all of their weapons and um, all the bombs that are dropped on Yemen were produced in the United States.
0: And they're still stamped, um, uh, manufactured exactly. in the United States with a little flag, too. And uh, exactly. Houthis <laughs> make sure to show this to the camera like, you're cluster bombing us. Exactly. Which is, yeah. I believe, a banned weapon per the Geneva Convention. I Well, the United States has not signed that particular part of that is true. Yeah.
1: International law. Um, it's like that in so landmines t- we won't sign. Yeah, basically. Like, what the fuck is the U.S. going to do with landmines? And, yeah. yeah. No. But, um, and also, as I mentioned, uh, American naval forces are blockading Houthi territory, del- like actively preventing aid from entering uh, food aid, medical aid and so on.
0: I think uh, um, something that we've talked about before that's comparable to this is like, you know, the U.S. like, well, we just give them targeting and, uh, you know, uh, aerial reconnaissance and stuff. And <laughs> it, it, it gives us a certain amount of plausible deniability when we did yeah. literally the exact same thing when Saddam gassed the Kurds exactly yeah. <laughs> like we just gave him the logistics like you, you know he had gas exactly what we you th- knew he had gas because we helped him buy it <laughs> like, yeah we kept the receipts yeah. Yeah. like there's not even that
1: level of deniability with saudi arabia like the u like trump and obama have both like openly been like yeah no this is all good like we support this um and uh it's not even like well like what can we do as we like sell him all the weapons it's like no we have to support Saudi Arabia in their war against Iranian proxies in Yemen. And also, like, on that point, all of this American and British and so on support for the Saudi war is done under the auspices of, quote-unquote, preventing Iran from helping the Houthis. However, there really hasn't been any credible evidence of any substantial Iranian support to the Houthis, militarily or financially, um, for several years. Like, I think the last thing I saw, that was, like, a hard evidence of Iran providing, like, weapons or something was in like 2013 or something like that but i i'm not remembering that number correctly but it was it's been several years um so any support that iran is providing to the houthis is highly highly limited um to probably like financial support limited training and very limited material support so this idea that the well, like we may be supporting the Saudis, but the Iranians are supporting the Houthis, so therefore killing children is okay. Um, that's BS. Like that's nonsense. What uh, Iran's support is like one percent of like Canada's support to the Saudis. Um, so the whole idea is nonsense. And also, like not that Iran's support for the Houthis justifies any of the actions the Saudis or Americans have been taking. No. Um, and, um, and all that does is uh, help kind of further this sectarian Shia Sunni war as if like, Oh, well, like if this, if, if the Saudis are fighting them, that means like, since some of them are Shia, that means the Iranians must be backing them too. And so the whole thing just makes things worse on top of, you know, all the murder and death and stuff.
0: I mean, it, it, it's definitely a proxy war, but it's not an equal playing proxy war here that's like saying the uh soviet invasion of afghanistan was a chinese proxy war because they gave weapons (laughs) to people like they were just involved uh exactly and you were telling me like when we came up this idea uh, a while ago and since we're on the topic of saudi arabia and the rest of the series is going to be about the uae um that the saudi's so the saudi government or the the saudi society and government is a lot like the uae society and government where Mm. It The population itself is rather small, and it's inflated yes. by a ton of migrant workers that they just steal their passport and can't go anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Um, I and, think something like
1: 30% of Saudi Arabia is foreign-born.
0: Yeah, and you were telling me that they were kidnapping people going to the Hajj, to Mecca, uh, and then forcing them into the military.
1: Yeah, no, okay. Disclaimer, this is like, I I cannot confirm... I did not read this from like a super reputable source. However, um, I don't I, I think even if that specific thing is not true, the uh, the theme is true. And that the, the, the Saudi coalition, which we're going to I think the main theme of this, these two episodes is what we'll talk about is kind of how the Saudi coalition has maintained a certain degree of distance from the actual on the ground fighting. And the Saudis um, have done a lot of funding and recruiting of particularly Sudanese mercenaries, or how cannon fodder, or whatever you want to call them. And um, I know that what happens on the Hajj um, is often very, very sketchy. Um, like there was uh, like um, a stampede a couple of years ago because yeah. some like Saudi prince wanted to like drive his car in. Um, and, there, and it was probably also somewhat deliberate because most of the people who died, I think, were Iranian um, uh, pilgrims. And officially, I think like 100 people died. But I think people also estimate that it might have been thousands. Jesus. Um, and uh, there's like a crane collapse on the, the Grand Mosque that killed like 100 people. That was cut on uh, video. I remember that. Oh, it was horrible. It was horrible. Um, and just generally, like the way Saudi treats... Um, foreigners, particularly from Africa, is, I mean, there's been reports of people being like disappearing on the Hajj and then turning up like years later, and they've basically been used as like a slave in some like Saudi's household um, or like in construction or things like that. So I would not be surprised if that report that I saw was true about Saudi Arabia basically kidnapping Sudanese and other like African. Um, pilgrims to Mecca and basically press-ganging them into service in Yemen.
0: Man, <laughs> like <laughs> ma- ma- imagine yeah. like being so because I especially for this, the Hajj is obscenely expensive, especially coming from yeah. such a uh, a poor place as Sudan or North or South, for that matter. Um, yeah. And then going like, I'm finally getting to see, I'm going to get to see the Kaaba. Then you just drag off into an alley somewhere like, here you go, private Muhammad, Yemen's that way. (laughs) Yeah, given like a beat up old AK and like a pair of boots and being like, all right, now go fight these like
1: incredibly effective guerrillas in these horrible mountains.
0: And the videos that come out from the Saudi war, uh, from the Saudi side of the war, rather, um, like of uh, it's almost always uh, Houthi videotaping uh, ambushes on the Saudis. Yeah. They're not using and, and so your idea that they're using uh, vast amounts of what is effectively slave labor in their military kind mm-hmm. of checks out um, yeah. to me because you don't expect a country that uh, gets so much money poured into it for its defense to be mm-hmm. driving around um, in a combat zone in a pickup truck. You know, Yeah, like, well,
1: so you've got kind of two kinds of forces fighting or really three kinds of forces fighting in Yemen right now. You've got the official Saudi army which is the guys you'll see driving around in like MRAPs and M1 Abrams and stuff and generally with like no real idea of what they're doing. Right. Um, And then you've got the guys in the pickup trucks who are usually officially Yemeni army. Um, But I think these are the guys that the Saudis are press ganging like Sudanese people into fighting. They're officially in the Yemeni army. Um, But like everything is like funded and created by the Saudis. Um, So the actual Saudi army is involved but in a more limited capacity. And they're also not particularly competent um, yeah. on their own. But they have fancy toys.
0: I know uh, a the, the UAE's so, military is involved much more heavily on the ground, which was what our next yeah. episode is going to be about, since this is now going to turn into a three-parter. Uh, oh, Jesus. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, totally fine. Uh, but yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, they they've taken some pretty grievous casualties like i know um yeah. they, i believe they had a missile strike which is probably a scud yes. missile on one of their bases yeah. and and they said it killed 50 people but probably more like the houthis videotaped the explosion and that was Chick. a fucking mushroom <laughs> cloud that killed way if there was 50 people in there and it killed them it's because there's only 50 people in there like that yeah or that's all they could
1: find at the end
0: yeah um, yeah yeah, but I think that
1: the Emirates, um, Emir- Emirates is even more casualty-averse than Saudi is because it's a much smaller country. Yes, and the actual, if I remember correctly, the Emirates has conscription only of Emirati citizens, so that does not include, um, you know, all the like Malaysian or Filipino or Sri Lankan migrant workers. So the lo- the loss of an Emirati soldier in war is felt much more heavily in the emirates than for example a saudi soldier dying is felt in saudi because of this very small population and it's also a much wealthier more educated country even than saudi um and so they're like p- kids who are going off and dying in yemen like their families are probably like comfortably middle class yeah um which is why they do the things which you know we all be talking about for I guess the next two episodes.
0: <laughs> um, that's actually a really good pivot uh, because the next <laughs> two episodes focus specifically on the UAE's mercenary army that they built, uh, led yeah. by Westerners. Uh, but yeah, yeah, that's a a really good uh, thing to point out is uh, you the the Emirates have about one million citizens, um, okay. uh, give or take. But the country is uh, I think Emiratis are uh, are outnumbered like three to one by non citizens um and the vast majority of those people just cannot leave because when you move there to work and you're not a white guy uh they take your passport and you can't leave um (laughs) but that is a really good pivot into the next episode so uh stay tuned and uh (laughs) next week we're gonna talk about stuff that isn't depressing and full of cholera oh man i don't know how like I don't know. I, I know a little bit about of what we're going to be talking
1: about in the next two episodes. And you may be saying that now, but <laughs> <laughs> stay tuned. It may not be 85,000 children starving to death level of depressing, but it's more of a like, man, my country of America really is shitty kind of depressing.
0: Australia gets some uh, Australia gets some credit here, too. All right. Gotta All gotta spread English it around. Gotta yeah, spread it around. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you got Australia.
1: I don't know if Yemen has South Africa involved. Yes, South, they South sure Africa do. <laughs> of course. Why? What is it with all these like psycho? I mean, I guess I'm answering my own question when I say white South Africans. Um, like, why are they all psycho?
0: Yeah. Um, I think it has something to do with the mercenary culture there. Um, time. <laughs> ever since <laughs> the, the end of apartheid, yeah, ever since the collapse of apartheid, you had a pretty large population of well-trained special forces operators, and they were very uh, well versed in, yeah, very racist and very <laughs> w- very well versed in uh, doing shit that other people wouldn't do. Uh, which is why you have like executive outcomes being deployed to the Ivory Coast um, and Sierra Leone and everything like that. Um, And actually the guy who uh, the uh, executive outcomes uh, was so effective that it's actually the reason why uh, South Africa has a law on the books banning PMCs from South Africa. So none none are actually based there. (laughs) They're just full of (laughs) South Africans. Yeah. No, I mean, I haven't,
1: I mean, in in the line of work I'm in, I've I've heard about some of the kind of like security people. Um, uh, This kind of, I don't want to spend too much time at the end of the episode, but like I read an article about the U.S. military base outside of Baghdad and the company that is responsible for base management there. Um, I forget the name of the company, but it's a major like uh, defense contracting company Um, and the the base there like the the contractors there consist of like south african white south africans who are like the management who are like in, so racist and like have formed basically segregation on base they have basically enforced apartheid within the company um on the base <laughs> i know i
0: shouldn't laugh at that but it's like yeah of course they did
1: yeah and it's like so bad that um and it, Uh, one thing that i think is really funny if i'm remembering the article correctly is basically it was only broken up because um one of the popular mobilization units the like what the like new york times loves to call iranian backed shia militias basically like moved on to the base and the american military was like all right like you just have to like you can't fight back like you have to just like move (laughs) (laughs) Um, you you uh, can't apartheid the iraqis exactly um and, but it was really bad. the stuff I was reading, like they were like swastikas being like written on like the um the doors of like black employees or like Asian or uh, uh, Middle Eastern employees. And like if you were non-white, like you were basically unable to really get anything but like latrine cleaning duty. Um, but yeah, like they have a bad reputation.
0: <laughs> well, they they don't do their sums any favors. No, so uh don't. With that, since everybody's sad again, <laughs> we'll see you next week. Hi, this is Nate Bethay, and I'm the producer of the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. This show is brought to you by Audible. And as it just so happens, Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30 day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash donkeys and browse the selection of audio programs. Download a title for free and start listening. Once again, that's www.audibletrial.com forward slash donkeys to get started.